0: This is episode number two hundred and fifty seven with AI researcher Melanie Mitchell. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now, let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by my very own book, Confident Data Skills. This is not your average data science book. This is a holistic view of data science with lots of practical applications. The whole five steps of the data science process are covered from asking the question to data preparation to analysis to visualization and presentation. Plus, you get career tips ranging from how to approach interviews, get mentors, and master soft skills in the workplace. This book contains over 18 case studies of real-world applications of data science. It covers off algorithms such as random forest, k-nearest neighbors, naive Bayes, logistic regression, k-means clustering, Thompson sampling, and more. However, the best part is yet to come. The best part is that this book has absolutely zero code. So how can a data science book have zero code? Well, easy, we focus on the intuition behind the data science algorithms so you actually understand them, so you feel them through, and the practical applications. You get plenty of case studies, plenty of examples of them being applied. And the code is something that you can pick up very easily once you understand how these things work. And the benefit of that is that you don't have to sit in front of a computer to read this book. You can read this book on a train, on a plane, on a park bench, in your bed before going to sleep. It's that simple, even though it covers very interesting and sometimes advanced topics at the same time. And check this out, I'm very proud to announce that with dozens of five-star reviews on Amazon and Goodreads, this book is even used at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, to teach one of their data science courses. So if you pick up Confident Data Skills, you'll be in good company. So to sum up, if you're looking for an exciting and thought-provoking book on data science, you can get your copy of Confident Data Skills today on Amazon. It's a purple book, it's hard to miss. And once you get your copy on Amazon, make sure to head on over to www.confidentdataskills.com where you can redeem some additional bonuses and goodies just for buying the book. Make sure not to forget that step. It's absolutely free. It's included with your purchase of the book, but you do need to let us know that you bought it. So once again, the book is called Confident Data Skills and the website is confidentdataskills.com. Thanks for checking it out and I'm sure you'll enjoy Welcome back to the Super Data Science podcast, ladies and gentlemen, super excited to have you back here on the show today. And the guest for today is Melanie Mitchell, who is a professor at Portland State University an author of six and soon to be seven books on the topic of artificial intelligence an online course creator and one of the leading researchers in the field of AI. And what you should expect from today's episode is a very chilled, laid back, relaxed conversation about AI, complexity and supporting topics. So we're going to go into a few philosophical areas and what you'll hear about is uh, complexity, what it is and how it works and how it can be seen in different areas of life from ants, colonies to the human brain to the Internet itself. Uh, We'll talk about common sense, uh, metacognition, explainable AI, what it is and what the trade-off is with efficiency of artificial intelligence. Uh, We'll talk a bit about DARPA and military applications of artificial intelligence. And you'll also hear Melanie's ideas and thoughts on the future of AI, which break down into two areas, which you'll find out in this podcast. So quite a philosophical conversation coming up. And before we dive straight into it, I'd like to do a shout out to our fan of the week, who is Joseph, and who said, this series is truly informative. I have just started to take the first steps in data science, and this podcast not only helps to learn the basics, but keeps us informed on the latest trends in this field. Thank you very much, Joseph. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this particular episode. And for those of you who haven't yet left review you can head on over to itunes or to your favorite podcast app and leave your comments there i'd love to read them and get to know what you have to say on that note let's dive straight into it and without further ado i bring to you melanie mitchell a leading researcher in the field of artificial intelligence welcome back to the super day sense podcast ladies and gentlemen super excited to have you on the show today because with me i have melanie mitchell calling in from portland melanie how are you going today
1: i'm doing great how are you
0: i'm well thank you very much uh super pumped to have you on the show um very actually we just as we were talking before very excited to talk about all these topics about your books about Uh, your courses about uh, the work that you do, complexity, artificial intelligence, and all these other areas. Um, Probably to get us started, can you tell our listeners, please, who is Melanie Mitchell and what is it that you do?
1: Right. So um, I I do research in artificial intelligence and machine learning and complex systems. I'm a professor at Portland State University in Oregon, and I'm also external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico. Mm. Um, And I work on uh, both research and education and writing. So um, I do a lot of writing, and and I have several books on these various topics.
0: Mm. Uh, To to be more precise, Melanie has six books and one more coming out uh, later this year in September, I think you mentioned. Congratulations. Yeah. It's so exciting.
1: Thank you. I'm, I'm excited about it.
0: And in fact, one of your books, um, a guided uh, Complexity, a Guided Tour, uh, won the 2010 Phi, Phi Beta Kappa Science Book Award and was named by Amazon as one of the 10 best books of 2009. Is that right? Uh,
1: the, yeah, one of the 10 best science
0: books. Best science. <laughs> yes, yeah. best science books of 2009. <laughs> Tell us a bit about that book, Complexity, A Guided Tool. Let's start with complexity. What is complexity?
1: So, um, complexity is a very broad area that deals with what are called complex systems, Mm. which are systems that uh, you can say they're sort of more than the sum of their parts. Mm -hmm. So think of the brain, for example, which consists of um, hundreds of billions of neurons each doing some relatively simple operations, but together somehow emerging out of that giant system is, is what we call intelligence, mm. and emotions, and cognition, and all of that. And so the question of complexity, and you know there's other complex systems like the economy, uh, the immune system, insect colonies, people are looking at what are the commonalities among all these systems? What can we say about complexity in general across lots of different disciplines. So my book is kind of an overview for a general audience about what complex systems is, what's been done in the field, what are the big questions, and why is it all important.
0: Hmm. Interesting, so what what would you say is uh, like one golden nugget that you can share from your book with us today?
1: So one of the things I talk about is the science of networks. This is a very general uh, area in which people look at how networks—that is, huge collections of entities that are linked together in some way—you can think of a computer network or the brain with neurons being linked together, or a social network. Mm. What? What? How do? How are these networks? Um, structured? And is there anything in common that makes networks in nature and maybe in technology also work the way that they do? Uh What makes them resilient? And it turns out that there's, you know, in, in the last maybe 30 years, there's been a lot of discoveries about commonalities and kind of universal laws regarding these networks. And it's just fascinating that something like the internet has some properties in common with the brain, and it has properties in common with economics. And the question is why? How, sort of, how did these things come about? And you know, how 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 are they resilient? How are they vulnerable? Mm. and go so on.
0: Interesting. So it's almost kind of like a um, a template for an entity that is applied across different areas. We see whether it's internet ant colonies, the human brain, but it's there's something. In common across, and so by discovering features in one area, we might be able to see them and apply them or leverage them in other areas of life.
1: Exactly right. Yeah.
0: Very interesting. Have you? Somebody recommended me this book, but I haven't read it myself. Just wanted to get your opinion. Is have you read *The Square and the Tower: Networks and Power from Freemasons to Facebook*? Freemasons to Facebook. Have you, uh,
1: now no, I haven't read that, but it sounds fascinating.
0: Yeah, it would be pretty cool for both of us to read and talk about it. Sounds like yeah. you'd be the perfect person to discuss it. Um, but anyway, let's uh, let's get back to your book. So you have uh, this Complexity of Guided Tour. And what's the book that's coming out in September? You mentioned that that might be the most relevant one for our audience.
1: Yeah, that's uh, called Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. <laughs> and it's a broad overview of modern day ai mm-hmm. through how do some of the most prominent systems that we we, we all use or we hear about how do they work mm-hmm. uh, what can they actually do versus you know what what are they claimed to do in the media
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh how far are we now from human level ai and what even does human level ai mean mm-hmm. so the book is really it combines both sort of philosophical discussion with actual, you know, getting into the details of how deep learning works and how uh, programs like AlphaGo, which a mm-hmm. uh, recent program that beat the one of the world Go champions, you know, how, how does all that work and uh, does how intelligent are these systems really? So that, that's it's, it's really a, meant to be an accessible exploration of modern day AI and some of the big questions surrounding it
0: no Now, I know the book is not out yet, but um, is there anything you can share with us to give us like a teaser or a taster for what to expect inside the book?
1: Yeah. Um, so one of the things I talk about is um, the idea of narrow versus general AI.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, what we have, we, we've seen a real revolution, you might say, in AI over the last, you know, 20 years, where systems, including deep neural networks, have become incredibly good at certain tasks, like uh, speech recognition, uh, object recognition in, in images, um, uh, playing games like Go and chess, mm-hmm. and so on. But these are all pretty narrow um, areas, like AlphaGo is the best chess player, in the, I mean, sorry, the best Go player in the world, but it can't do anything else. <laughs> can't play any other game even it even can't play any slight variation on go
0: mm. so, let, let alone cooking a breakfast or something like that
1: right <laughs> <laughs> right and um, the question is what would it take to get a system that would be more general like humans are mm-hmm. and what it you know i think humans often don't even know all the things that they actually are, are good at mm that uh, computers are actually very bad at um because it, things are things come to us so easily um like for instance just having general common sense um
2: mm-hmm. being
1: able to describe what we see in, a, in an image uh you know being able to take something that we learned like you know like playing checkers and transfer that to some very similar game,
2: mm-hmm.
1: how does that all work and how, why can't current machines do that? That's yeah. kind of one of the big things I talk about in the book.
0: Interesting. Um, so when I was learning about artificial intelligence, uh, what I found about neural networks interesting is that it's they're designed in a way to mimic the human brain, but at the same time, they're much more As I understand, they're much simpler, much more basic than even the neurons that we have in our brains. Uh, Would you agree with that? And do you have any additional comments on that?
1: Yeah, I agree with that. They're they're inspired by the brain, and in fact, you know, they're called neural networks after all. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a lot of important differences. Uh, One big difference is that most of the most successful neural networks are what they call feed-forward, meaning that the input goes in one end and it moves through layers of the neural network in one direction up to the output. Mm -hmm. But there's no feedback. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the brain, especially say in the visual system, there's 10 times as many feedback connections as there are feed-forward connections. Interesting. You know, when you uh, look look out at uh, some kind of visual scene, not only is you know the light coming into your eyes and going being processed up through the layers of your brain, but expectations and knowledge and emotion and all that is also feeding back mm. to affect receipt. And that's something that's almost entirely lacking in today's neural networks. That seems to be incredibly important.
0: Mm. Well, how about back propagation?
1: Back propagation is not the same thing because back propagation is a it's a learning mm. method where you uh, uh, look at the error that a network made on some example that it was given, and then change the weights mm-hmm. to um, make make the output more correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of a that's that's a you know one step at a time learning method. Yeah. But what I'm talking about is just not when the network's learning, but when it's actually doing something, like identifying uh, uh, an image as uh, somebody walking a dog, right? Say, look out and you see somebody walking a dog. Okay, you recognize the objects in in, in the image, and you know something about uh, these concepts, and the, the whole, uh, process of recognition you know aside from learning aside from back propagation that involves a lot of feedback
2: mm-hmm.
1: in, in humans of you know things that we already know things that we expect to happen we can make predictions about what's going to happen next and uh, and that helps us in making sense of what we see so perception itself in in humans in the brain is a very dynamic process whereas in neural networks it's a very static process
0: mm-hmm. interesting interesting so it sounds like even though neural networks are inspired by the human brain they're quite a way away from what the human brain is capable of that's
1: yes that's right and there i think everyone in the field would you would quickly acknowledge that's true and say there's a lot more to be done in the field to make Neural networks more brain-like, and there's obviously a lot of research towards that goal.
0: Gotcha. Um, there's about a hundred billion neurons in the human brain. How many neurons do we get up to in neural networks these days?
1: <laughs> well, I guess there. You have to have some caveats there. So, so um, there's maybe a hundred billion neurons, but there's also you know trillions of connections oh, yeah. between them. There's also other cells in the brain besides uh, neurons that maybe ha- have a lot of uh, functionality. Mm-hmm. Um, and the brain also has a lot of uh, not, not only electrical like neurons firing, but also chemical communication. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a bit more complicated than any neural network. I don't know how many neurons are in the largest neural network today, but um, it's almost like comparing apples and oranges. Mm-hmm. And people sometimes say, like, uh, oh, you know, in, in, the exponential growth of, of uh, hardware, we're, we're going to be able to match the computational properties of the human brain in, you know, Five 10 years. years or so. But Five, I nine. think that's, that's um, missing a lot about the, the complexity of the brain and how it's wired up
2: mm.
1: and how it o- operates, it, how its dynamics work. Mm, similar thing happened, you know. A similar thing happened with um, the. I think the human genome. People people um, thought that once the genome was sequenced, we'd understand quite a bit about you know how living systems work. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that the um, the complexity was, wasn't in the number of genes. Just like the complexity in the brain isn't the number of neurons, but it's really the interconnections among them. Mm-hmm. So there you go with a network example of a network.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Again, another network. Yeah. Um, wow. So sounds like even if we increase the sizes of neural networks, there's other considerations that might be necessary in order to achieve general artificial intelligence one day.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Uh I don't think there's any controversy about that, mm. at least in the field. It's mm. not just a matter of adding more more and more neurons and more and more layers, but there's some other fundamental aspects of uh, how the brain works, how learning works, and so on, that we're really missing in today's neural networks.
0: Well, I guess that's, that's uh, good news, especially for researchers, because that's where we get um, new, Inventions coming up all the time, like um, uh, by the likes of uh, the general adversarial networks, um, or um, the recent publications by Jeffrey Hinton, or um, the full world model things like that, where people are experimenting with different approaches that are like not the standard, just grow your neural network size, and. On that note, I wanted to kind of switch to your research a little bit. Tell us a bit about what is it that you do at uh, your research lab. How, first of all, how big is your research lab and what do you guys focus on?
1: So <clears throat> I have um, about six PhD students working with me and a number of master students and some undergrads. And what we're working on is uh, we're working on right now vision, sort of how is it that a machine might be able to make sense of visual input, Mm -hmm. like an image, and not only how to, for instance, recognize all the objects in an image, but also to have a system that could make sense of all the relationships among the objects. Mm -hmm. For instance, I mentioned, you know, the idea of an image of a person walking a dog. Yeah. Today's neural networks can do a good job of recognizing objects in the image. They could recognize that there's a person, there's a dog, there might be a leash, mm-hmm. uh, there might be it might be in a park with some trees and so on. But it would be it's often hard for a, a neural network to recognize those the relationships that we would recognize that yes the person is actually walking the dog mm-hmm. and they're both walking and the do- they're Uh, going in the same direction and that they're kind of connected to each other. And uh, in general, this idea of being able to recognize more complex visual concepts Mm -hmm. is difficult. So my work is on integrating deep neural networks with uh, representations of knowledge, so prior knowledge that a person might have about concepts, and being able to recognize these more complex visual concepts in uh an image or video we're also looking at so it's kind of integrating uh neural network approaches with more uh, sort of old-fashioned ai more symbolic approaches
0: uh-huh. okay interesting what, what pops to mind here is that sometimes as humans we make like, definitely, we're better at recognizing dogs and people in parks and predicting where they're going. But sometimes as humans, we make mistakes in recognition. For instance, like, if you're looking straight and then with your side vision, you see a shadow. Like, sometimes you might think it's, uh, I don't know, like an animal or it's uh, a threat to you or something like that. Uh, or, the, you know, there's lots of these visual illusions where... You're looking in the center of an image and it looks like the image is moving, but it's actually not moving. Um, so in that sense, AI might actually be better than us. So do you think that's a, a problem in our brain or is that something that we can leverage in research to understand better you know, how the brain works? Why does it make these mistakes?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so humans definitely make errors. Um we're susceptible to visual illusions. Mm. Uh, you know, we see we see faces uh, everywhere, mm-hmm. even though even when there are no no faces actually there. Mm-hmm. We certainly have you know what people call cognitive biases.
0: Mm. Oh, um, may I just add one more thing before uh, while we're on this? Sorry to interrupt. I just remembered. Yeah. I noticed this one really peculiar um, kind of like mistake or something that i was not expecting if you try to look at a human human's face while they're talking upside down ah yeah it's like i don't recognize people like i like you know like a family video is playing and i'm lying upside down on the couch like i don't recognize myself my brothers my parents completely as soon as i go beyond like the 90 degree tilt like it's completely different people that's that, that blows my mind like is that that's something like is that just we're not designed to look at people upside down is that why
1: um that's interesting (laughs) yeah i i I think that um there's something very uh specific about faces in our brains you know we're really attuned to recognizing faces to looking for faces because we're such a social species um and so i think when you're looking at someone upside down you're trying to make sense of their upside down face Mm. as a right side up face Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it, it doesn't quite make sense yeah So uh, I think, you know, other objects, we don't have that problem so much. Mm -hmm. Faces are just this weird thing that we have. We have some specific brain, you know, hardware specifically for recognizing faces. Mm. But what I was going to say about sort of cognitive biases, um, you know, the mistakes that we make. So some people have, have... propose that ai systems will be better because they won't make the same mistakes we do they won't have the same biases mm-hmm. and that's true in one sense but in the other sense it's not totally clear to me that you can have general intelligence without having these biases interesting and i you know i can't prove it but people talk about super intelligence you know machines that are smarter than humans in every way and don't have the same biases don't aren't aren't influenced by emotions the way we are uh, and therefore, you know, and can read a billion, uh, a billion books in in, a, in in an hour and all of that. Um, I have a suspicion that that's not possible
2: hmm.
1: and that we can't have it both ways. We can't have general intelligence without some of the biases that we ourselves have. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that's something that's going to be, you know, people are going to be examining over the next many decades of trying to understand human intelligence and trying to get AI. Uh, I think that there, there's going to be a trade-off between uh, general intelligence and, you know, being able to be kind of unbiased in this sense. Mm-hmm. So that's just a speculation.
0: Very interesting. So have you noticed any of these uh, or any kind of biases? pop-up in your research so far?
1: Ah, um, oh, that's a good question. Um, there's absolutely... Um, our, in some sense, our systems aren't smart enough to have the same kind of biases that yes. people do, but our systems, you know, they one of the things that um, they have is they have expectations, mm-hmm. So because they have some prior knowledge. Oh, okay. So they sometimes, like, um, you know, if... Uh, if they if if my system sees a person and a dog they tend to they they look for uh, a leash mm-hmm. the person holding a leash and sometimes hallucinate it <laughs>
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so that's sometimes a problem
0: okay gotcha interesting and uh, so tell us a bit about the world of research what is they'd like to do research versus what is it versus like doing applied artificial intelligence in business, in industries. Like what are some of the commonalities or significant differences you would say?
1: I, yeah, it's very different, I would say. And, um, you know, when usually when you're have an applied, uh, doing some kind of applied, uh, work, Mm -hmm. you have a very wealthy, formulated problem, mm-hmm. you know, you have a data set, you want to um, cluster it or, uh, you know, find, find certain communities, say, in a, in a set of data, like certain people who have very similar tastes or something, mm-hmm. uh, and um, it's, you, you take some method that you've already exper- had experience with, like clustering, and you apply it to the data,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you try and interpret the results. So, so in research it's more like the you have to come up with the question itself mm-hmm. and there might not even be any method that exists that addresses your question mm-hmm. and your results might not might end up being completely uh, wrong you know you, 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 your hypotheses might be completely wrong mm-hmm. and so at the end of the day but in research that's kind of Normal mm-hmm. state of affairs <laughs> is that you're wrong. Whereas I think in applied research, you know, if you if you get a bad result, that's actually a bad thing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so um, you know, different people. I've had students who came from business and just found it, you know, wanted to do something that they felt was more creative. Uh, and I've also had students that really don't like the sort of open-ended nature of research. Mm-hmm. They want to do something that's more, that has a more obvious, immediate impact, and that has kind of a right answer. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you know, that I I think there's, you know, there, there's, it's not as black and white as I'm putting it, because there's obviously a, you know, a continuum of uh, kind of activities that people do between research and applications.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, I think, you know, the my... My constant state of affairs is being wrong,
2: <laughs>
1: and that's kind of what research is, is. is that's what you are in research, and that's okay. You know, that's part of it.
0: Yeah, gotcha. It only takes one time to be right to make a technological revolution, and it's okay if you're yeah. hundred times wrong before then.
2: Exactly.
0: Interesting. And so, do you think? Do you have application in mind when you're doing your research? Or is it research for the sake of advancing um, science and then we'll see how we apply it when we get there?
1: I think there's both in it. I mean, my I got into the field because I was really interested in what intelligence is, mm-hmm. which is, you know, kind of a broad question. And so I wanted to understand intelligence and one way to understand it is by trying to create it. Um, I can... Imagine um, applications for some of my work. Um, you know there's all kinds of applications for for visual understanding. And in fact, some of my students have gone on and 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 worked for companies and applied some of these ideas. Mm-hmm. But it you know application building a system that other people can actually use for real problems is is a huge undertaking. In itself <laughs> mm-hmm. even if all the ideas are worked out just building a production system is a huge uh, a huge job that you know I haven't myself done so I've been focusing more on basic research
0: mm. gotcha gotcha
1: so, uh, yeah
0: okay all right um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about your piece in the New York Times for, so for our listeners, in November last year, New York Times published a piece by Melanie called Artificial Intelligence Hits the Barrier of Meaning. And the subtitle is Machine Learning Algorithms Don't Yet Understand Things the Way Humans Do with Sometimes Disastrous Consequences. Could you give us a quick overview of uh, what uh, this is, piece is about and like what prompted you to write it?
1: So this piece is... Um... It's kind of in response to a lot of the media coverage on AI that we've seen. You know, we see headlines such as, you know, machines are now better than humans at object recognition or machines have sur- surpassed humans at reading comprehension. i seen that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And these different um uh, views of uh, you know machines are better than humans at playing the world's most difficult game go mm-hmm. and so the the and these are all in some you know you could argue that these are true because the machines have uh, surpassed humans on some particular uh, data set data, benchmark data set
2: mm-hmm.
1: but um, it's not really true in general uh, because the machines, they, they can do things like translate from one language to another. You know, we've, we've seen translation programs, say, or recognize speech really well. But they don't understand, in the sense of human understanding, what the, they, they don't understand their inputs or their outputs. And the reason why it can have um, bad consequences is that it turns out that this makes the machines fairly fragile. Or some people call it brittle, meaning that, you know, they do really well as long as they um, have the kind of data they've been trained on. But if the data changes just a little bit, they can completely fail. And also, they people have shown that they're now very vulnerable to kind of hacking. I don't know if your listeners have seen these what's called adversarial examples.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Where, um, a hacker could change an input say, to a speech recognition program, just a little bit, in a very targeted way, change like the audio signal, and it would not set, sound any different to a human, but the machine would, would interpret it as something completely different and possibly something that you might not want the machine to interpret it as.
0: Mm. Or, or that example with the stop sign and a few stickers on it can make the machine yeah. see it's like a 60 kilometers per hour speed limit.
1: Exactly. And it turns out that these, these systems are very vulnerable in vision, in language, um, in playing games even,
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> face recognition. Uh, and so if we start ap- having broad applications of these systems that are, have this kind of fragility, and I argue in the piece that the fragility is because because precisely because they don't understand in the mm-hmm. sense that we understand mm-hmm. these concepts, um, it can have dangerous co- consequences. Mm-hmm. And we've already seen that in, in face recognition, for example, um, where uh, systems can be fooled pretty easily. And now, you know, certain, certain uh, organizations are uh, – using face recognition as a critical security uh, you know method
0: like iphones right now
1: iphones and you know i think um, some police forces are using face recognition uh, as a way to catch fugitives or spot criminals whatever mm-hmm. but it's not very robust because the system doesn't have the same kind of understanding of the world that we have,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so that—that's—that was kind of the point of the piece. It's kind of a cautionary note on, you know, all, all the, the, the AI revolution. It's real. AI has progressed a huge amount, but it's still quite fragile in sense because it hasn't progressed enough in some sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, On on that whole notion of um, people being able to fool AI, I was listening to a talk by Ben Taylor recently on YouTube, and uh, he like I think it was in that talk that I heard uh, the notion that as long as we have people who are you know combating criminals who are trying to create algorithms that are smarter than what uh, hackers and other um, people with malicious intent are trying to create, we're always going to, it's always like a double-sided coin. You have people creating these protective algorithms, but that means the knowledge about how they work and about where they're going is out there. And not to say that those same people are going to go and be malicious, but it's the knowledge is out there and it's potentially accessible, and that means that somebody can always be a step ahead anyway. And so as long as we like protect ourselves from hacks and all these malicious events, the more we do that, the more stronger and sophisticated the hacks and malicious events are going to become anyway.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably right. But, and there's a kind of a biological analogy in that, you know, we, uh, all Living things are attacked by wow. other living things. There's kind of biological arms races
2: mm-hmm. all over
1: the place So, you know, we humans have these very complex immune systems that protect us from most of the things that uh, attack us But not everything of course no, mm-hmm. they're not perfect, mm-hmm. but the state of AI right now is that it's ridiculously easy to attack these systems Mm. and even without attacks they're they're quite fragile you know uh even if they're not being attacked if they have some they run into some situation that they haven't been trained on that they have a problem um so in some sense we'd like to get ai to uh, part of general intelligence i think is being more robust to attacks of any kind Mm. And it's not, acts are never going to go away, right? (laughs) But there's, um, living intelligence systems seem to be more robust than uh, our current AI systems to uh, being fooled or being attacked in these ways. And so we'd like to just increase the amount of robustness.
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so do you think that, uh, how can we, and the question, and on the other hand, can we even make uh, machines understand meaning better?
1: Yeah, that, uh, how, that's an open question. Hmm. So one of the big things that people talk about now, nowadays is common sense. That's become kind of a buzzword in AI.
2: Even.
1: Hmm. People say, one of the problems with AI is it doesn't have common sense. And common sense can mean many things. But one of the things that uh, people mean is that, you know, we humans have kind of vast knowledge about the way the world works. Mm -hmm. And um, that knowledge is used in our sort of perception of things that things that occur, you know, in our lives. Uh, We know that. You know, if you drop something that's made of glass onto a tile floor, it's going to shatter. Yeah. You know, we we learn all kinds of things like that, what people call intuitive physics or also intuitive psychology, you know, how people are going to react. I know that if I drop a piece of glass onto a floor and it shatters, you know, people will be startled.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, And we learn all that. Some of it's innate, probably. Some of it... Uh, is learned when you're uh, very very young um and how do you get machines to kind of have this general understanding of the world and there's a lot of uh, funding now darpa for instance which is you know one of the biggest funders in the u.s of ai has a big program called machine common sense where their their goal is to get machines to sort of have the common sense of an 18 month old baby
2: Hmm.
1: and that's uh That's kind of seen as a grand challenge now. And that's part of sort of the effort to making machines sort of understand the meaning of the situations they encounter.
0: Mm. DARPA is part of the military, is that right?
1: That's right. The Defense Advanced, D-A-R, Research Projects Agency.
0: Interesting. So what what are your thoughts on governments investing more and more funds into defense in the space of artificial intelligence. is that got any dangerous consequences in your mind?
1: Um, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, in, at least in the United States, the defense department has always been the biggest funder of AI. Mm. Um, and, uh, it, you know, DARPA has been one of the biggest funders in the defense Uh, world. And in fact, they have set up their grand challenges for AI that have really pushed the field forward. So, you know, it was their grand challenge for autonomous driving that's really pushed the whole field of of self-driving cars. Oh And their their grand challenge on speech recognition that really pushed, you know, the advances in speech recognition. So they've done a lot of great things for the field. They've really pushed it. On the other hand, you know, I'm quite worried about uh, military applications of AI, especially you know, autonomous weapons that would presumably, you know, make decisions about who who to kill or what what thing to bomb and without any human uh, input. And that's mm-hmm. something that I think the military would like to have, but I think it's very dangerous for the same reasons that you know, uh, I talked about in my uh, New York Times op-ed that that these systems, they don't have the same understanding that we have. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that presents a lot of danger.
0: So, like, what's an example of that? What's an example where a system doesn't have the same understanding as we have, even though, like, we've programmed it, we've created it, and we are quite sure that it's going to do as we've told it to do, kind of like as we've pre-programmed it. Do you you have any examples where that could backfire?
1: um well one of the problems is that we i mean what you said we we pre-programmed it Mm -hmm. but the way that systems most the most successful ai systems work today is that they learn from data we don't program them Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they learn uh from huge amounts of data Mm -hmm. and we we don't understand how they make their decisions because Mm -hmm. the system consists of you know some deep neural network with millions of weights Mm -hmm. and it doesn't explain itself Mm -hmm. so it can't explain to us why it made the decision it made uh just like you know the the example you gave with the stickers on the stop sign why Mm -hmm. did the system think that that was a a speed limit sign instead Mm -hmm. of a stop stop sign Mm -hmm. well it can't really explain why and people are still trying to figure out how these adversarial examples uh, fool fool these networks, they don't totally understand it. Mm -hmm. And so we have these systems that work, seem to work really well on the data that we test them on, but we don't understand how they work, Mm -hmm. or, and we also can't predict where they're gonna fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. another push in, in the whole field of AI to have more explainable AI, systems that can explain their reasoning. And that's very difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something we had in the old days of AI when you had sort of expert systems and they could explain because they used human-programmed rules. But they didn't work very well. Yeah. They weren't... <laughs> and so now we have these systems that work much better, but they're much less explainable.
0: So this is kind of like a trade-off, right? Like, you you want if we want them to be explainable, we're risking of stifling AI growth. And not just stifling it, like, there's always going to be... Due to the nature of competitive markets, there's always going to be countries or companies that are developing non explainable ai and they're going to get ahead is it is that is that about right like at the moment is it a trade off between explainability and efficiency
1: um, yeah, I think that it can be um and there's also kind of a philosophical question of what what does explainability actually mean? Like so for instance the the European Union now has a, just, you know some laws about GDPR.
0: Um, we all yeah, love GDPR.
1: <laughs> yeah, it has some laws and one of the one of the things in, in that is is the uh, you know right to an explanation, I think it's called. Or
0: yeah.
1: if like a, a, a computer system tells me that I can't have a loan that I applied for, I have a right to an explanation. But what does that even mean? What's an explanation? You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I you know, if I tell you all of the weight values in my neural network, is that an explanation? Mm-hmm. Well, not really, because the human can't understand anything about it. Yeah. But it's not clear what constitutes an explanation.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh so I think that's that's a kind of a philosophical issue that you know.
0: But what would you, get you say? What would you say explainability is? Like you're one you're one of the leading researchers in this field. <laughs> if anybody, you should have the answer.
1: I, you know, it, I think it 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 explainability as we know depends on it, it's kind of a a social construct. You know, mm-hmm. if I'm going to explain something to you, I have to have some kind of theory of mind of, of you i have to under so have some model of what your prior knowledge is what at what level of explanation you're looking for mm-hmm. you know um and um it's really a social thing yeah. i think explanation and we, you know that's something that we don't really have with machines is that whole social component the machines don't have uh any intuition about the people that they're dealing with, or mm-hmm. how to explain, you know, d- d- explanation is very context dependent, let's say.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. So um, basically, we need another AI to explain AI to, to humans. We need to explain, you know, that's, right? I
1: mean, something that people are working on is sort of meta, what people call me- metacognition, which is cognition about cognition. So, understanding your own cognition enough to explain it to someone
0: interesting how far ahead are we on that front uh,
1: not, not very far and people aren't always good at this either
0: yeah you know? oh that's I so mean, true yeah
1: yeah people people will give explanations that really have nothing to do with the real reason <laughs> <they do something. laughs>
0: yeah yeah I've, I've heard that and I've probably done that many times oh, myself. Yeah, you
1: don't you don't even know you know yeah. that uh, uh, that you're doing that but people will it's been shown many times in psychology experiments that people people rationalize away things that they did Mm -hmm. after the fact
0: yeah yeah (laughs) and don't even
1: consciously know why they did a thing
0: right Mm. melanie i also had this um recent revelation and i wanted to run this by you so with humans i always thought that you know like our brain is the the main source of all of the uh, thoughts and actions and so on and then like and then that goes down the body and and the rest of the body is just mostly for executing and you know surviving and keeping keeping the brain running but then uh, and and there's this kind of like uh, f- uh show kind of like a cartoon's been around for a while it's called Futurama have you, have you seen Futurama?
1: Yeah I've seen it.
0: Yeah so they have this one character I think it's uh they preserved Richard Nixon from back in the day, but just his head, and now then he then they put him on the robot, and then he moves around right. and like and can think and so on, and and kind of like that's pretty cool. But what I learned recently is that a lot of our emotional state is actually directly connected. There are nerves that go straight from the core of our brain to or go to the core of our brain straight from our um, intestines from. Uh, you know, stomach and you know, smaller, larger intestine, and so on. So, basically, your gut flora affects directly how you are feeling and what mood you're in. And so, it's actually a much more complex uh, structure than just the brain itself. And with that in mind, will machines ever, you know, like even if we are able to recreate the brain, there's so many other aspects to human emotion and. and cognition understanding meaning will machines ever be able to understand this or once we do create them and give them that capacity to see meaning they will just never be able to relate to you know the same way that we do to events and objects and things that they see and hear and experience
1: <laughs> yeah i don't know the answer i i think it's a good question i you know there's there's a Branch of AI called it's called embodied cognition, mm. which the hypothesis is that it's ridiculous to think of this idea of a, a disembodied brain, which yeah. is what most AI systems are, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> without having a body.
0: Like Th- thank you have. for putting into scientific terms what I tried to just describe.
1: Yeah, I mean it's 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 completely valid, and uh, I I think there's a lot to it that. We don't realize, you know, people, we see the brain as being this central processing unit,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and everything else is kind of per- peripheral, but it's really not correct. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, biology figures out more and more about the complex systems <laughs> that is is mm-hmm. that that is the body. Uh, we're going to see that there's so much more to thinking than just, you know, neurons firing in the brain. I think you're absolutely right.
0: Interesting. So would you say that um, the, like, I'm just curious to get your stance on the whole issue. You know, some researchers and scientists say that AI, general AI, as soon as it gets here, you know, will be a massive help to us and save lives and help us invent things and propel humanity forward. And others say that once general AI gets here, it will... Completely not understand humans and think that we're a plague on this planet and wipe us out. What, what are your thoughts on on these two scenarios? <laughs> um,
1: so I you know, I I Think we're very far from understanding what general intelligence is mm-hmm. So it's really hard to say what general AI would do or wouldn't do or be like Um I think we underestimate the complexity of intelligence, our own intelligence, which is why we, we think that, you know, a lot of people think that general AI is, is imminent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I don't know the answer because I don't really think we understand enough about intelligence mm-hmm. uh, to, to say what would happen. I think there are dangers that we should be aware of that, but, but uh, you know, one of the things I quoted in my um, op-ed was uh, Pedro Domingos, who, who's an AI researcher from University of Washington. He had, he had a book where he said, um, the real danger, I can't remember the quote exactly, but it's like, you know, people say that AI is going to get super intelligent and take over the world, but the real problem is it's actually too stupid and it's already taken over the world.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that we, you know, we trust too much in AI that's not smart enough rather than being faced with the danger of too smart AI.
0: Interesting. Very interesting quote. Um uh, and when you think about it, how like the technology that we use is already the extension of our lives. Like we look at our mobile phones like 150 times per day. Like <laughs> yeah. it's hard to imagine walking outside the house without your mobile phone. It's ridiculous. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Very interesting world we live in. Um, Melanie, uh, on that note, um, I actually had just one more question for you from, from the perspectives that you have and from what you're seeing at the, like at the forefront of artificial intelligence, are there any, or is there any recommendation you can give to our listeners who are data scientists, aspiring data scientists or business managers and owners what to look into or what to be prepared for in the future of AI in the coming one, two, three, maybe five years at most?
1: I think one of there's a couple of things. One is that um, the whole connection between AI and cybersecurity is getting uh, more and more strong, That that AI, as it gets more capable and more uh, sort of broadly deployed becomes more vulnerable to attacks. Mm-hmm. And that's something that people are just beginning to grapple with.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, some of the cybersecurity people have been talking about this for many years, but I think people in in, in sort of the the real world of AI applications are just beginning to grapple with the security implications. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is that, that I think there's going to be the next set of advances is probably going to be around what people call unsupervised learning. You know, AI today, it's mostly done by having the system be trained on, you know, millions of examples. And uh, the, the examples have to be labeled by a human uh, as to what their category is. And that's not very sustainable because it's hard, in a lot of cases, hard to get a lot of examples like that. And so we have to get systems that learn from data, but without the data being carefully labeled by mm-hmm. humans. Mm-hmm. And that's, as Jan LeCun uh, call, called unsupervised learning the quote-unquote dark matter of AI. <laughs>
0: that's like, a beautiful quote.
1: Yeah, it, ha- it has to happen. We have to figure out how to successfully train systems in an unsupervised way Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: but right now no one really knows how to do that very well Mm -hmm. so I think that's actually going to be an area where there's we'll we'll see a lot of progress soon
0: Mm -hmm. gotcha thank you so cyber cyber (laughs) cybersecurity and unsupervised learning for those listening Um, also Melanie well on that note uh, we've uh, slowly approached the end thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, before I do let you go, please let us know what's the best ways for our listeners to uh, get in touch and follow your work.
1: Uh, so they can go to my um, my web I don't know if you have a you put uh, that on.
0: Yes, we'll put that in the show notes, of course.
1: Yeah. Um, and that has my contact information and all of my papers and everything. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the best way to follow follow my work.
0: Awesome. Okay, you also have Twitter, I believe?
1: I have Twitter, that's right.
0: Okay, Link- um, LinkedIn as well?
1: And LinkedIn, yeah.
0: And you mentioned before the start of the podcast you have a course in the Santa Fe Institute uh, about complexity, and it's free. Um, tell us a bit more about that. That's that's a course that anybody can take?
1: Yeah, so um, the Santa Fe Institute has uh, an online education platform called Complexity Explorer. Mm-hmm. maybe you'll put that in the course notes, ComplexityExplorer.org.
0: Mm-hmm. One word. You can
1: put that in the show notes, one word, ComplexityExplorer, and then .org. And they, the, the site has uh, many courses and tutorials related to complex systems. My course, I have an online course there called Introduction to Complexity, which is has no prerequisites. Anyone can take it um and it's it's a pretty fun easy way to get an introduction and an overview of complex systems it's kind of based on my complexity book
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and i'm hoping to do one of those on ai as well but that that's for the future
0: (laughs) awesome fantastic and of course guys look out for the book the new one uh the one the one that we mentioned uh today was um we mentioned two books right so the one is the existing book complexity a guided tour and the new one Artificial Intelligence, uh, A Guide for Thinking Humans, that's coming out in September. Yep. Okay. On that note, Melanie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. really appreciate your time and you sharing your knowledge with our listeners.
1: Oh, it's been great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, that was Melanie Mitchell, professor at Portland State University and one of the leading researchers in the space of AI. What a podcast and how many different resources were mentioned today. Uh, First of all, my favorite part of the podcast was probably the whole notion of complexity never understood it as clearly before. But indeed, it looks like there are lots of commonalities between different systems around the world starting from Anne hills to the human brain to the internet and many more and it's very interesting to learn more about that. And speaking about learning, as Melanie mentioned, you can get free access to her course on complexity if you head on over to complexityexplorer.org, all one word. Plus of course, make sure to check out Melanie's books. She's got six of them and the seventh one is coming out this September. Uh, in 2019, and that one is gonna be about artificial intelligence. And uh, as usual, you can get all of the links and the materials that we mentioned. I know it might be hard to keep track of all of them in your mind right now, but don't worry. You can just head on over to superdatascience.com 257, that's superdatascience.com 257, where you will find all of the links and materials mentioned on the show including URLs to Melanie's LinkedIn and Twitter where you can follow her, her courses, her books. And plus, you'll get the transcript for this episode if you'd like to check it out. On that note, thank you so much for being here today. I hope you enjoyed this chat. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes or wherever else you're listening to this podcast. And I look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing.